2: Yes, it is, and welcome back as we head into Hour 3 this Wednesday, October 28th, 2020. It's a delight to welcome back to the show Professor Wilford Riley from Kentucky State University, author of two important books, Hate Crime, Hoax, and Taboo, Ten Facts You Can't Talk About, has a very important piece up at Real Clear Politics today, Why Woke History is Not the Answer. Professor Riley, welcome back, and thank you.
0: As always, good to be back on
2: the show. You betcha. It's great to have you as well. I want to start, if I may, with the end of your piece, where you write, The goal of a scholar or a teacher should be neither to present a blemish-free false vision of a subject nor a virtually all-warts critical presentation. Rather, it should and must be to examine the realities of history accurately and honesty. The goal should be, in other words, to tell the truth. Amen to that. That is kind of the problem, though, isn't it, that we have been seeing um, in sharp relief of late uh, in such things as the works of the 1619 Project and Ibram Kendi. And in some respects, too, it spills out of the academies and the ivory towers, doesn't it, to an animating philosophy that uh, ends up on the streets of places like Philadelphia today, doesn't it? Isn't that kind of the problem we're looking at right now?
0: Well, there, yeah, there's, there's quite a lot there, but um, a good deal of truth included. I mean, so this piece was a fairly popular one. I've, I've done a bunch of media around it so on. But it's also, it's the front piece of real clear public affairs, and it was written in part for an academic audience. Mm -hmm. And I'm really criticizing two ideas in scholarship. One of them we don't see too much anymore, but that's sort of a jingoistic perspective on your country or your tribe. You're going to ignore anything negative that's ever happened. This is how U.S. history, frankly, was taught until perhaps 65 years ago. The other, which I think is more dangerous and which we see more of late, is what you call critical theory. It's a negative history. You focus on your society's imperfections. You talk constantly about race and class and gender and so on. And what I say in the opening line of the piece is we're one of the first societies ever that's been crazy enough to tell a lie about our history that makes us look worse (laughs) rather than better than we were. And, I mean, you mentioned the 1619 Project. One of the things I say in the article is that the 1619 Project doesn't just mention genuine oppression of black people or, you know, brave black and white soldiers fighting together, things that happened. It also says things that are nonsensically false, like the claim that the Revolutionary War was fought to continue slavery. Uh, Britain had slavery for, in the overseas colonies for 57 years after the war. Um, the claim that black people fought entirely alone for our rights would have been disputed by a lot of guys in Union Blue. I want to come I mean, back so to that. The, yeah, right. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, no, no, yeah, these, these no. Aren't, these aren't just things that are debatable or you know, edgy or something like that. These are things that are false. And if you actually look through a lot of critical black or feminist theory, for example, the claim that sex barely exists, a lot of this stuff is just nonsense. It's not a right-wing conspiracy that a lot of it is gibberish. That's actually a reality. So this piece breaks that down.
2: It does a great job of it. I, you know, I, I was thinking after I read it. You know, there's a lot about what's going on with uh, 1619 and, and, and woke history. This may be the single best piece that 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 takes it on, summarizes it, explains it, and disabuses people of some of its some um, some of its uh, m- main notions. So thank you for it. Um, yeah, let me, let me. there's any number of places to start here, but I wanted to go where you just went, uh, something you mentioned as a third common and incorrect claim from the 1619 Project yeah. that black people fought for the most part alone. I don't know if this is a, a lack of communication between races that have been divided more lately or not, but I think one of the great offenses of the 1619 project to a lot of non-minorities, white people, let's just say, is that they know that history is not true, and it's actually hurtful. It's actually hurtful from a place, of course, where the whites, the white people who fought for civil rights, they weren't, of course, the oppressed. But my gosh, they, this could not have happened without a wide and broad level of support And it almost makes it as if the white man is now the enemy, is now the enemy merely for being white. I don't know if I'm explaining this thinking correctly or appreciably to you, but it's a very hurtful thing that puts a lot of people on their heels when they write things like they fought for this alone.
0: Yeah, and there's quite a lot of that on the contemporary left. I mean, people will say things like, I bathe in male tears. And I mean, the reality is that women could not have gotten the vote without men voting for them to have that right. I mean, black people, although we have a great warrior tradition, had been defeated by the time of our arrival in America and would not have been freed from slavery without the 90 percent white union army that fought for that freedom. I mean, slaves, of course, cannot free themselves from bondage. So, yeah, th- this is one of the things that many people find it somewhat embarrassing to acknowledge. I don't, personally. I mean, all of my ancestors—I'm of Irish, Celtic, Black, and Native descent—all my ancestors were quote-unquote, warrior peoples, but all of them suffered a fair amount of oppression through their history. That's what <laughs> yes. human history is. Yeah, yes. yes. Um, so— saying that, well, of course, there were a number of you know Englishmen and people in the international community and so on that worked to help out Ireland. That's not a point of extraordinary controversy. But if you want to create, again, not a story of truth, but a narrative that'll make you feel better, that'll excuse away ugly questions like, who sold those slaves in the first place? That's when you get into... Kind of the pleasant lies of something like the extremes of Howard Zinn or 1619. But again, I don't think there's much recourse down that road. I mean, as you said, it makes your former allies angry. If you are Caucasian and you were so anti racist that you would have been willing to march through Selma or fight the Union Army, and you're being told that you're no different from, you know, Wallace standing in the courthouse door. One of your reactions might be, well, this is ungrateful nonsense. I'm not going to tolerate this at all. I think more importantly, an issue is that people just aren't learning reality. Oh, that's if a big one. Told,
2: that, that's yeah. a big one. But I think there's an ancillary point to it, too. You tell me if I'm wrong, Professor. I think the ancillary point is 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 that it is used as a tool. This argument of theirs is used as a tool to establish that we are a systematically racist society. In other words, that is to say white equals racist, and one of the arguments to prove that is that we had to do this all on our own.
0: Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting point, actually. I'd say that to some large extent that's accurate. So th- This theme that all of the whites are somehow, even if they don't admit it, unified against all of the blacks comes up a lot, actually, in very hard left sort of quote-unquote scholarly writing. So, for example, you hear that minorities can't be racist because white people have most of the power. And one thing that's never questioned about that is, well, do you believe all the whites are kind of in it together? There's one room where decisions are made. The reality is that white incorporates dozens of groups, Italians, Irishmen, Jewish Americans, so on. And about half of the white group votes for each of the two great political parties. Mm -hmm. So pretending... There's this one sort of – well, I don't know how great they are these days – but pretending that there's this sort of organized group of white people that are out there oppressing you and you have no white allies, again, that's something that's designed perhaps intentionally to build up racial tension. That has no resemblance to reality where 46 percent of whites voted for Obama and so on.
2: Right, and it's equally true – and I think we err uh, on this this as well – it's equally true, the diversity in the white population. There's a tremendous diversity – in the uh, black or African-American community in America, too, especially when you look at immigrants uh, from Africa, different regions of Africa, different places in Africa. So, right there is a lot of stratification uh, based on a lot of different subgroups there, some of whom do much more, uh, much, much better than the average white man in America at educational uh-huh. attainment and earnings, etc. I think we miss that, too, don't we, Professor?
0: Yeah, well, this is one of the problems with the reparations idea, first of all. I mean, as uh, the conservative writer Dennis Prager has pointed out, more black people have come here willingly since about 1950, as successful immigrants, business people from Jamaica and so on, than were brought over here as slaves. Mm -hmm. About 30% of the black community, although you were someone in the audience might correct this, is foreign-born within the past couple of generations. So are you saying, when you talk about reparations, that... A guy whose ancestors were farmers in Sicily 100 years ago should be giving money to someone whose ancestors were farmers in Nigeria 100 years ago. America is a nation of immigrants, so that's a very complex question. But, yeah, this is, this is again, something that the people who argue that, for example, just gaps in income indicate racism never right. consider. If that were true, the system would have to be set up for the benefit of Asians and West Africans, richest people in the country, or Nigerian, Korean, Japanese yeah, immigrants, really to such to such a point that some people oppose further immigration. So that's that's something you have to deal with.
2: Can you can you stay one more segment? Because if you have sure. time, I'd love to keep you. I have to take a commercial break. If you can't, I understand. But if you can I would love to have you.
0: No, that's absolutely fine. I don't have a meeting until about 10 our time. So, yeah, glad to talk.
2: Perfect. We're talking with Professor Wilfred Riley. Two important books of his, Hate Crime Hoax and also Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About. Professor Wilford Riley from Kentucky State. I want to talk about, yes, what's gone on in the the Ivory Towers, but now how it moves into the streets and policing as well with him. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Delighted to have Professor Wilford Riley with us. His books, Hate Crime Hoax and Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About. We're talking about his essay featured at Real Clear Public Affairs, Why Woke History is Not the Answer. And, Professor, we were talking about how this manifests in uh, academia. I wonder if I might uh, talk with you a little bit about how it may manifest out of academia into the streets. Um, You tweeted today... Uh, I think it was today, that it's becoming increasingly obvious there are no police shootings most activists would find acceptable. Is sure. not the problem of police and, and violence, resisting arrest violence, black violence, um, and police officers' interactions, is not some of this resultant from an ethos that says... White equals bad. All police equal enemy. Systemic racism exists, and thus we have, we have taught through our culture and through this intellectual um, no, n- nonsense, if you will, if I can, intellectual nonsense, that, that this, is, this, is, this has to be a permanent fact of life. If you're a cop, you're wrong. If you are a black person, you cannot be a criminal subject to arrest or violence if you resist it?
0: Well, I think that there are some people that probably feel that way. I've met a few of them, but this actually gets into a pretty complex question okay. because the reality is that there are actually also very high rates of crime, and, for example, Hispanic immigrant communities or Appalachian white communities, and 80% of the people that the police shoot aren't black. That's just never discussed. Okay. So, I mean, I think that the entire narrative of there's a near war between cops and young black men is completely baseless. This isn't to say that we shouldn't work on getting crime under control and quote-unquote the hood. so on. But I mean, I mentioned two other communities that are right on par. The cops aren't murdering black people, at least in any sort of bulk numbers. If you look at the total number of unarmed African-American males killed by white police officers last year, that was eight as far as I can tell, and a few shootings by black officers as well. So the first point I would make here is that there's actually very little... Police civilian violence. Of the total number of fatal or near fatal cop shootings in a typical year is about a thousand. Okay. Um, of that group, and again, this matches the crime rate pretty well. We have a higher, but by no means incredible, crime rate in the black community at this point. About two hundred fifty of those people, so a bit of an overrepresentation there, mostly due to higher crime. Will be black, and that, that's it. Again. Um, Fourteen last year were unarmed. Eight were unarmed and shot by white people. Hmm. So when you get into that tiny number of cases, I'm sure that some of the African-American criminals, just like probably some of the Hispanic and Italian criminals, Italian-American criminals, had unrealistic views of the country. But the, the broader issue there is that this entire the police are going crazy and shooting people narrative is something that's been very nearly made up by the media. When you and that—that's something you can't emphasize enough. I mean, when you hear about, for example, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, you know, those are tragic cases. But those are almost a third of the total number of unarmed individuals killed by police this year. You can check that out at the WashingtonPost.com. Mm. So that—that's the bigger issue. I mean, sure. I it, one thing I will say, I think that you see more of what you're talking about during the rioting that follows.
2: Okay. Okay. Okay, I can t- I, I, I think that makes sense. One one last thing I wanted to do with you because the title of your piece always puts me into the, this kind of thinking. Why woke history is not the answer. Whenever I see the word woke, I um I I once upon a time I once upon a time looked up the origin of the word woke and where it first came from. The best I could find was a 1962 op-ed by a writer named William Melvin Kelly in the New York Times. And he was talking about seeing ads in the New York subway that were addressed towards the African-American or black community, Um, you know, ads that were were targeting, if you will. Uh And he wrote this in that 1962 piece. He wrote, the black man wants to be completely accepted in American life. He dreams of living in a good neighborhood, driving a nice car, sending his children to a good school, making a decent living and realizes that anything which sets him apart will keep him apart. In other words, this black writer, William Kelly, was talking about how it was not, to him, a good idea to make the black community separate from the rest of the community. If you will, that would have Uh been the integrationist notion. You hear this now, what he describes might be called uh, bourgeois middle class values. What went wrong here? because a lot of us were on board with that and if we say that today my gosh you become amy wax right you 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 get targeted to be fired
0: well, Amy Wax is still a tenured professor and one of my favorite writers. So again, as with, as with the, you know, a third of police are minorities. Most police are very well trained and there's no war between police and black guys. I do think it's important to distinguish between the nonsense that we both see on Twitter, the crazy okay. left-wing elite and most of society. Okay. The reality is that the large majority of Americans are bourgeois patriots. I mean, the black income's up to 85 plus percent of what whites earn, at least at the individual level. We tend to have smaller families. Asians out-earn whites. Jewish-Americans, the same. This isn't to criticize whites, blacks, Asians. It's to know that most people, when that guy says, I want to live in a nice house and drive a nice car, I mean, I do live in a nice house and drive a nice car. I don't feel like guilt about that. Right. So the, that, the majority of people that you meet on a basketball court or a golf course or whatever, black, white, Chinese-American, or normal guys, why have we developed this nut house, revolutionary left in the U.S.A.? My personal theory is that we built up such strong institutions in the 1960s to quote-unquote fight for freedom that they never went away.
2: Uh-huh. Um, the, in other words, you, the war was won, and they're still fighting it?
0: That's an excellent way of putting it, yes. So, okay. I mean, when you look at these players like the Southern Poverty Law Center, um, the NAACP, even the Nation of Islam in its crazy radical way, they did substantial good when there were clansmen to fight. Yeah, you can say whatever you want about the SPLC, you know, legal eagle, ruthless young lawyers, or you know, the the brothers in the black jackets, or whatever. But going up against the Klan, no one denies they were the good guys.
2: Right? The there was a time. No for Klan that. anymore. Yeah. yeah, right.
0: Yeah, right. no Klan anymore. There, there must be less than a thousand people in the KKK. I don't think any of them could afford to buy a set of all cotton sheets at this moment. So, the these powerful organizations, just for example. Straight figures. The Southern Poverty uh, Law Center's endowment right now is $470 million. That's a bit more than my state university. So if all of these groups, and this doesn't even get into just straight-up grifters, I mean, which run the gamut from – some of the people that have been setting up the GoFundMes and so on associated with recent BLM cases, up to, I would argue, the Lincoln Project. Mm -hmm. But if you have this massive organization of people drawing in this massive amount of money rounding up these angry young warriors in the service of this cause, they're not going to say ever that the cause has ended. Yeah.
2: Yeah It reminds me of a story. Midge Dechter, the writer, had an organization committee for the Free World, and she closed it in 1989, and someone asked her, "Why are you shutting down that organization?" She said, "We, we want won nothing to fight anymore." <laughs> she might have been exactly. premature, but that's what we're talking. Wilfred Riley, you are a treasure. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your scholarship so much. Thanks for being with us.
0: Well, thanks for having me out. Have a great day.
2: You bet, Professor. We'll be in touch. 6025080960. We'll be right back. That was one of the losses this year, Joe Diffie. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson show, six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. Uh love to hear from you if you went to one of the rallies today or anything else on your mind. Mike in Scottsdale. Hi, Mike.
1: Hi, Seth. How are you doing?
2: I'm well, sir. How are you?
1: Awesome. Thanks for taking my call. You bet. Hey, I just wanted to uh talk about racism. Um <clears throat> one of, one of the things that, that I've always thought um was that, you know, the the left, they they always say everything's racist, pretty much. Um, But just the fact that the Democrats, and I'll just, not just Democrats, but uh, liberals, whatever, uh, put such an emphasis on blacks and Hispanics and other racists in itself is racist. Uh, Because the minute you start Talking about hiring someone because they're black or getting another student in your college because they're black and we don't enough blacks, that right there is racist because you're using race to get something you want. And um, I think that people don't see it this way anymore because uh, they've been taught wrong. They've been taught the lie of how to see racism. Um, Instead of seeing uh, uh, a person because he's a good person or because he's funny or because she's nice or pretty or whatever, they see someone as black or white or Hispanic. And they've been taught this in school uh, for years, years and years. And now we've got another generation of people coming up I see it in my church even. I see, you know, that uh, the critical race thinking um, of people in church, and I've even seen people insulting George Washington because he owned slaves, you know, in our church. I never thought I would see something like that. But they, 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 they do and say all this stuff, and they're very sincere because that's what they've been taught. So I think in order to fix that, we need to talk about race this way, what, what I'm, what I'm proposing, uh, you know, as as racism, a lot more, even like on your program or anybody else, nobody ever says this anymore. They they just kind of go with it, you know, like it's like it's a fact. Um, and uh, I, I wanted to remind you, I'm the guy that that uh, calls in. Occasionally, and says, "Play the Hyphenated American by John Wayne." So, oh, yeah. uh, if you play thing. that, uh, yeah. I think it'd be a good good time to play that. So, you know, what, is what it's decade
2: miniature? of life are you in, Mike?
1: What decade? Yeah, oh, how old? Um, well,
2: what are you in? Sixties, fifties, forties? How? What are you? I'm, I'm sixty two. See, I think I thank you for answering that because I think part of this problem is generational, and sure, where it. Isn't explained by a generational phenomenon. It's um, it's fraudulent. Yes, your I, generation. Oh, I I said that, yeah, your gener your generation and mine grew up with a notion mm-hmm. that thought and was taught. If we weren't thought, if we didn't think it, we were taught it. That to make any judgment. Well, let me put it this way: that the definition of racism is to make a judgment based on race, usually a negative judgment. Exactly. Many well, in the even, civil even rights even
1: a even a positive. Yes, judgment.
2: fair fair enough. It, because it, it would if mean you make a positive judgment right. It, because it would colors, mean you're making a, right. A positive judgment about race means you're treating someone else differently, negatively because of their race. It it, it goes together. It's it's right. It's two face, It's two faces of the same coin. And a lot of that generation, that earlier generation, delighted and thrilled when people like Thurgood Marshall wrote in his brief something I'll never forget. In his brief in the Brown versus Board of Education case, he was the lawyer arguing for the NAACP and Brown versus Board of Education. He wrote, it's worth memorizing, distinctions by race are so evil and arbitrary and invidious that a state bound to defend the equal protection of the laws must not invoke them in any sphere. What he was saying is any distinction by race is evil, arbitrary, and invidious. That was the understanding that gave us Brown versus Board of Education, the Civil Rights Movement, the King Movement... Uh, The the movement John Lewis marched for, I'm going to put you on hold and and ask you to come back on the other side because I've only done one side here, our, our generation. That's the ethic we could unify around. And we looked at the most noxious of regimes coming out of World War II, seeing what it did by making distinctions on race. And we got it. We understood it. And that carried forward for a while. And then it changed, and there's a new thinking, and we'll come back and talk about that shortly. Welcome back. If you're uh, in the midst of selling your home and it's not going well, or if you're contemplating selling your home, I want you to call James Wexler of JMG Real Estate. He is the agent that sells more homes, over $500,000, than any other agent in Phoenix and Scottsdale, at no risk to you at all. He'll let you out of a contract anytime. He guarantees to sell your home at market value, or he will pay the difference, and can also just make you an upfront guaranteed offer on your home within 24 hours of you reaching out to him. If that's a better deal for you, call James Wexler at 480-386-0711 or visit him online at jameswexler.com. That's jameswexler, W-E-X-L-E-R dot com. Do we still have Mike online here, Bill? I'm Mike, still here. thanks. So right before the break, I was saying that there used to be one ethic about uh, racism and equality. And it was the understanding that to judge by race was in and of itself evil. And you said, and I I was making the point you agreed, or we came together on the agreement that to favor or disfavor one race is to automatically, ipso facto, disfavor another race. In other words, judgments by race, period, were the problem because race itself doesn't tell you anything about a human being or shouldn't it doesn't tell you how they think it doesn't tell you how they live it doesn't tell you how they dream and we started using it in the in the late 60s and early 70s for just that very thing we started using race as a replacement for almost every other thing that mattered in conveying jobs promotions educational opportunities to the point, I would say that we started using the crudest aspect of a human being, their skin color or their mm-hmm. ethnicity, to make the subtlest of judgments about them. And that was a reversal from what we had thought we learned and been taught from the two decades prior. One could go further. One could go further as Justice uh, Harlan put it in his dissent in Plessy versus Ferguson, which is, we are a colorblind people and our Constitution tolerates no distinctions among the races. So one could go further back. But it didn't become a ubiquitous idea that suffused our thinking, really, until the 50s and 60s, and really the Civil Rights Act of
1: 1964.
2: But it then changed. Go ahead. You go ahead. Wasn't
1: that what Martin all about. Yeah, yes,
2: of course, of course. Um, and one of um, the things that was so wonderful about Martin Luther King's position on this, teaching about this, instruction on this, not just that it was so obviously true, but it was mm-hmm. something that could unite everyone. We could grasp right. it. He brought it back to something that could unite every patriotic America right. lover. Right. So, okay, so. yes, we get it. You're here to cash the check, as he said, that Thomas Jefferson wrote. We get well, that. Here, that's our here's connection.
1: The, here's the problem. And and that's you're exactly right. But what has happened is we've taken that speak out of our society and even on the right we've done that. I can I can Tell you one thing that drives me crazy, and I've always wanted to cl- uh, call in to his show, is Seb Gorka's show. He has a, a, a his bumper that comes on at the front that introduces his show. Has a bunch of uh, uh, leaders from the past saying. Yes, all I know their what you mean. Things. Yeah, a well, montage. Well, he's yeah, he's got a thing with Martin Luther King in there. and says,
0: "I have a dream," yeah. and then it
1: just goes off into something else. And I always want him to finish the rest of it because nobody ever the rest of that that they are to be seen by their character, not by their skin.. Okay.
2: Well, you and I may yes. have a slight disagreement, not about that. I, I take your point uh, on that. Mm-hmm. We may disagree, and maybe I'm wrong for taking for granted that so many people do know that Martin Luther King said that. It seems to me one of the most quoted uh, lines in American rhetoric. It's just that it's not agreed upon anymore. That's my view. Now you may be right, and I may oh, be wrong. You may be very much right, and I may I be very much wrong. I never looked at it
1: that way, but maybe that's true. I, I just the way I've seen it and heard other people uh, talk about it, and, and you know, all this, is, even even, uh, the young people, you know, uh, they they all they all say Martin Luther King, he's great, you know, talked about he had a dream, and but they never say. That particular thing, because if they did, they would be calling. And so they don't. They don't. Yeah, yeah, you're
2: breaking. You're breaking up just a little. But I take your point. I take your point. It's 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 um it's unfortunate if you're right. It's unfortunate. It's not taught as much as it once was. It's Mm -hmm. more unfortunate that it's not appreciated as much as it once was. But even you know we suffer a certain the... problem. We suffer a certain problem here, um, uh, and it's this: a lot of us who believe that to our core, and I can give you my history. Others have their history with this. We who, who, who have fought for these ethics is that um, we are told too often by a lot of activists and scholars that that's not for us to quote. That's not for us to quote. I'm blanking on the name of the professor at uh, George Washington University. I'll think of it in just a name, quite a prominent man on MSNBC. I'll think of it in a minute. But I remember he, he wrote a series of essays in a book that white people have no business quoting those lines of Martin Luther King and I remember being told by Eleanor Holmes Norton, we shouldn't be quoting dead saints. And it's as if our use of that ethic and ethos is, is, is wrong. I understand why they say it, but I think they're wrong. And I think the level to which we are divided by race in this country is the level to which we have dispensed with that notion. And that's why I am so horrified by the 1619 Project. Our history of 1776, rightly read, is a history of liberty and equality. And the 1619 Project wants to take that away from us, which means they're taking away from Martin Luther King anything he could point to in 1963 remember he pointed to the Declaration of Independence as Frederick Douglas had and put it and affix it to a year that makes actually bondage and slavery our founding and most important moment and that's a reversal that is taking grip in our education system and in the minds of our youth and it is I believe the cause of so much strife
1: mm-hmm.
2: For uh, spending some of your afternoon with us, I often like to close with a quote from your, but the quote I want to close from is from something I didn't get to raise with my guest in the second hour, Candace Mercer, the woman who wrote in Medium Why I Voted for Trump, a coming out story, a woman who was a committed leftist her entire life until this year. And she wrote this, My own lying eyes see Molotov cocktails thrown on a nightly basis. I see people assaulted and threatened. I see people forced to pledge allegiance to a Marxist organization. I see defensive looting and property crime, callous when it is someone's business, which they have poured blood, sweat, and tears into. I see cars being surrounded by historical mobs, sleeping working people deliberately awakened with childish sing-song chants. I see coercion. I see Antifa baiting police to use tear gas in residential neighborhoods, using residents, including children, and the elderly as human shields. I see activists engaging in a high-level dehumanization of law enforcement in an effort to neutralize the cognitive dissonance of maiming another human with fireworks, baseball bats, ball bearings, and high-powered lasers. I see people dying and people facing long prison terms for their murder, lives shattered in an instant by uncontrolled and pointless rage. Yes, we didn't used to see that. We didn't used to defend it, and we didn't have a political party that tried to excuse it or merely tell us it doesn't exist. And as we go into this election next week, I think that... Helps explain and show and reveal the stakes more than anything else. And is going to produce a lot more Candy Mercer's than we know. She had the courage to write. And write she did, and courageous she is. But I, I think, I think that for every Candy Mercer who's public, there's about 500 who aren't. And they're going to show us who they are on November 3rd. Until tomorrow, I'm Seth Leibson. God bless and class dismissed.